The Financial Planning South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super-flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. Today in the studio, I have with me Becky Temba Mafulela. Becky, it's wonderful to have you here. Becky is a chartered financial analyst, a man with a lot of deep thoughts, some that can often provoke uh, extreme comments on LinkedIn, as we as we've seen. And hopefully today we can have a conversation about how you started in this industry of financial services, how your journey has been over the last 21 years, and more recently, how your life has changed. But without spoiling anything, Becky, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks, Louis. Thanks for inviting me. We've uh, we've had a, a chat before and kind of we both got super passionate about technology and how do we how do we deliver advice at scale. And before we jump into those things, can you give us a little bit of a background of how you ended up in a career in financial services, you know, was that always in South Africa? Where did you start? Give us that kind of backstory. No, no, thanks, eh? So, born and bred in Zim, um, I've been living here in South Africa now, maybe close to a little bit over ten years, twelve years, thirteen years, thereabouts. So, yeah, so you know, grew up uh, uh, admiring my uncle who was an accountant. So I was supposed to be an accountant, uh, and then and then when I got to university, I almost studied actuarial science, and it ended up in an economics class <laughs> for some strange reason. So so my undergraduate is is in economics. Uh, started off my career as an investment analyst actually, so I've actually worked longer as an investment analyst than I've worked in financial planning. So that's a bit of a fun fact about me. Worked now in three countries. So I've worked in Zim, started off uh, my career in Zim before moving to South, South Africa, but also had a short stint as well in Zambia uh, in capital raising, more corporate finance work. So it's, 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 been, a, it's been a bit of a journey. And uh, I think, I, you know, the one time I was chatting to a coach that said, you know, the way things are transitioning now is that of a career you actually have five different careers altogether, not five different jobs, five different careers. And I think I'm close. 
to actually <laughs> to actually achieve in that because I think every every time I've sort of changed countries or you know changed professions, I've I've tended to do something fairly different to what I've been I was doing before. So yeah, so that's that's my short journey uh, in in financial services. You know, sort of ten years initially as an analyst, and then the last sort of ten years in financial planning. So actually, started off as a financial advisor actually for two and a half years with Old Mutual, and then six years at Allen Gray, and the last three years now with Momentum. Biki, I want to I want to chat a little bit about that that career changing decision. Why you went from analyst? Why you said, "Hey, this is not for me." into something seemingly similar but very different. Yeah. No, so I think it's more uh, uh, a journey where, you know, like in, you know, one, you, you have a slight change of, of interest and you develop new interests as you go. So, so, so I definitely enjoyed, you know, uh, investment analysis work, you know, started off pretty much straight from college and, and it was good fun, you know. But a lot of spreadsheet work, writing reports, and that sort of thing, and and I think you know just at a point in my career, I just felt I need a bit of a change, you know, just to show a different side of myself that I'm not all about spreadsheets and number crunching. That I can actually also do a little bit of stakeholder engagement, relationship management. So the last ten years, you know, I sort of moved more to the people side of things and less to the to the spreadsheets. So I think in a sense, these things are quite complementary because, I mean, if you think about our industry, ultimately, you know, we, financial services is not about one thing. You know, we've got investment alpha, which is very important. We've got advice alpha now. We've got things like gamma, all these things that people are coming up with in the industry, financial coaching, et cetera. So I think, I think in a sense, I've always been fascinated by the industry and the idea that you can do different things and understand the industry in a much more nuanced, holistic manner. And I think part of that is that curiosity that that sort of leads me to different things as as different opportunities come my way. I love that, how you've said, hey, I'm, I know I can put on my hat as a financial analyst, but let me stretch into these areas. And I think for a lot of people listening, thinking about financial planning as a career, it might sound very singular it might seem very like focused oh we have to understand our products understand our client needs and deliver a product but your experience has been a lot more nuanced and a lot more kind of areas that we that we need to explore is that what you expected before you made that switch from analyst to old mutual financial planner not entirely i think i think i had a sense of the possibilities but you know the experience is always slightly different so so coincidentally actually like a, a good friend of mine who was already a consultant actually came to me um when i was still an analyst just to understand a little bit more about you know investment analysis because they actually wanted to switch from being a consultant into an analyst and they ended up interested me on actually switching from being an analyst to a consultant, right? So, so I think it sort of like sort of started off by that just one casual conversation, and 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 I got curious about CFP and inquired a little bit more about it, uh, and then decided to take the plunge and study my CFP. So, so I think in terms of the 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 knowledge, you know, the interest of the industry, it was definitely sort of probably even more than what I expected. 
But I think in terms of the earning potential of the of the industry, it was probably a little bit oversold to me. What you can earn as a commission salary advisor, you know the story, right? <laughs> so that part was a little bit of baptism of fire. But I think I've got no regrets because I think I learned a lot about the industry. Uh, my time as a financial planner at, at Old Mutual. And, and just grew from that, from from advice, and then went into consulting thereafter. Now that you mentioned that, I'm, I must share a story with you. I went for an interview with one of the insurance companies. I'm not going to mention any names. And the person interviewing me said that I can guarantee after your first month, you'll earn more than what your dad is making. And I thought to myself, how on earth do you know what my dad's making? It could be very easy or it could be near impossible. And like you said, it, it can easily be be oversold this kind of lure of you can earn as much as what you can write. Absolutely. I, I think that's one thing for me. I think we need to be a little bit more um, more modest as an industry overall to, to younger people, uh, you know, in terms of the 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 potential to earn, you know, run your own practice. I think it's a lot harder than what a lot of young people might perceive, you know, joining the industry. You can certainly do well, but it does take a little bit of time, you know, to to build up a practice, uh, to have the knowledge, the skills, the networks, you know, the confidence to actually do well as a financial advisor. So I think I think that part of part of the story we can definitely do better as an industry overall to prepare young people and to manage their expectations as they join the industry. So agree with you. Vicky, do you have a sense of what the advice space looks like in Zim? Do they also strive towards certified financial planner status? Is is it right for people to seek out professional advice in that market? Good question, uh, Luis. Uh, I think I think it's much smaller than South Africa for sure. So I mean, if you look at CFA, CFP charter holders, CFP professionals rather, uh, globally, South Africa I think has got the seventh or highest number of CFPs in the world, and almost the bulk of all the CFPs on the African continent. So I think CFA is much more popular in Zim than than CFP. So I mean, I, I was the first uh, person to actually study study. Uh, start my, my CFA and completed in Zim. Uh, and I never heard about CFP then. I only found out about CFP when I only, when I came to South Africa. So I think, I think CFA is, 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 is much more prominent in, in Zim. So the, the advice industry in Zim is still quite small. It's more, really more driven by sort of more sales product salesman type thing, which is still a challenge here in South Africa as well. I think we, we do have that sort of, Dual industry where a big chunk of the industry is still quite advice is still quite product led, but also you know moving towards an advice led with you know with qualifications like and 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 competencies like CFP you know playing a role. So I think in Zim it's it's still very very small, more product sales, insurance sort of sales and that sort of thing, uh, and and not so much. Uh, you know, advise. I think Unitrust and Zim are quite tiny. So when I started off my career in, in Zim, I worked for a stockbroken firm before I joined uh, an asset manager. And, and Unitrust were very small then. In fact, share portfolios in Zim were more prominent than, than Unitrust. So that probably tells you the size of the industry itself. <laughs> did, I, did I get that right? Were you one of the first charter holders in Zim? As a as a CFA analyst, that's my that's my 
my my claim to fame. So I was actually the first person to to complete the CFA actually based in Zim. That is wonderful. I mean, it's it's definitely you're planting the flag, saying, "Hey, we're professionalizing investment management and advice," and uh, it's definitely something to celebrate. Yeah, no, I guess yeah. Part of this makes me think that we have a benefit, right? Sitting in a emerging market that we a lot of people say we're maybe five or six or seven years behind what's happening in America, what's happening in the UK, what's happening in Australia both in terms of technology and advice and the way we engage with our clients. What's your take on that? Do you think it's accurate? Do you think there's a benefit being here or are we kind of in, in some cases maybe leading the change? So, so actually coincidentally, I actually did a, a podcast uh, with, uh, with, with Derek and Adam on, on their podcast uh, uh, a couple of months ago, actually, in September. And that's actually one of the topics we're talking about to say, you know, is, is the U.S., uh, because it's the biggest market, necessarily leading in everything in the industry? And I think, I think the conclusion from that podcast was that not necessarily. So I think, I mean, by far, the U.S. is obviously the biggest uh, uh, financial advice, you know, market in the world. But I think there's a lot of things that we're also doing quite well here in South Africa as well. And and potentially on the advice-led you know, story, we, we're not we're not seven years behind potentially, uh, if not already at par. You know, uh I think our industries are equally nuanced. There's still quite a bit of the the product led with advice led, uh, etc. So so I think at a global level, South Africa is actually quite a sophisticated uh, market. Uh, there's a lot of things that we're doing here that are as good as as any you see around the world, but there's also a, a big part of our market as well that still needs quite a lot of work. Uh, I think one of the things that I mentioned in that podcast is that if you look at a at an industry level, we've got over over a hundred thousand people that call themselves some sort of a financial advisor, financial planner, wealth manager, or salesman, right? And, and a very small percentage of that is actually CFPs. Or, or what I would call like an advice-led approach. So, so, so there's the very good, you know, in our local market, but there's still also quite a lot of the average and, and quite a lot of the, of the industry that still needs to do quite a bit of catching up. So it really depends on the segment, really. So you can't almost define the whole market as, as one sort of, you know, homogeneous composite because it's, it's actually not. It's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. That's great to you. And it sounds like we, we are evolving and we're saying, hey, parts, pockets of the market needs attention. You mentioned a word there, advice-led. And I recently heard one of the salespeople from an insurer talk about advice-led sales. <laughs> are we on the right track with advice-led sales? Or is that is that not part of the problem? What's your take? Yes and no. I think I'll be a little bit controversial, right? Because... I think we're all selling, right? Uh, I think, I think sometimes there's almost like, um, like a holier than the approach where we kind of like want to judge what other people are doing and assume that we, we are doing better than everybody else. I think, I think ultimately, if we're all honest with ourselves, we're all selling, even if it means just you're selling yourself, right? You know, you're selling even that advice led approach itself, right? So, so I think the word selling itself sometimes is unnecessarily, uh, uh, stigmatized 
right? I think it just depends what you're selling and how you do it and the ethics and the integrity that you go about, you know, your sales process. So, so I think because of just the, the negative effects that a lot of salespeople have had on the industry and the negative consequences on clients, the, the word sell in itself is, has become almost like a dirty word, right? Uh, but I think it's not necessarily always, you know, the idea of selling itself a, a bad thing, but I think often it is done in, in a bad way. Or maybe we should be thinking more about marketing, I don't know, uh, as opposed to selling. Uh, but certainly, I think all of us are either sort of marketing something, you know, uh, whether it's marketing an advice-led approach or a coaching way of advising clients or a much more uh, client-centric approach. I think in the States, for example, there's been a lot of conversations around, you know, our financial advisors, fiduciaries, for example, right? Because if you're a fiduciary, you know, it's a, it's a notch higher than being a financial advisor because a fiduciary is someone who literally puts their, another person's interest above their own, right? So, so that's, that's, that's a whole new game of client centricity altogether. So, so I, I, I tend to sort of not get sort of too caught up with terms and words, but more with integrity, ethics, exactly how you do it and, and the outcomes that you get for your clients. Becky, I want to bring it a bit closer to home and you've recently expanded your family. If, if you had to leave a note for your wife and child to say, this, this is the guidelines to go and look for a financial planner or advisor if I'm no longer there, what's on that list? Does fiduciary make the cut? Is it necessary? Or what's on your list? I think fiduciary is not realistic in South Africa for at least the majority of the industry, right? Uh, I, I mean, I, I followed the, the conversation in the States a little bit, so I can't speak about it with any level of authority. But I think if you look in the South African context, uh, I think we've got to fix the basics before we try and use big words like fiduciary. Because at the end of the day, the REM models for me and, and the incentives at an industry level are a much bigger challenge and a much obvious problem to solve for. Because, I mean, if you look at the sort of 100,000 odd people that are, you know, doing some sort of, you know, sales or marketing in the industry, a big chunk of them are not paid a salary. They're paid commission, right? So realistically, how much of a fiduciary can one be if you're earning commission and you start on zero every month, I don't think it's going to work very well, right? So, so I think if we cut out the conflicts in the industry and align the client's interest with the REM models, that is going to do much more good to the industry than sort of getting worried about fiduciary and all of these sort of things. Because I think ultimately the conflicts in the industry are a much bigger problem than what you call yourself, really. Okay, so we know fiduciary is not on the on the list. It's it's someone that's remuneration is aligned with with the client. But what else is on that guide for your for your family? I think just um, find like just finding the best way for them to to be able to meet the goals that they wanna they wanna meet, right? Um, so I think if you, also I suppose it depends as well which perspective are you coming from? Are you are you asking the question more from a perspective of a client? Or, or, or from a perspective of the example that I'd want to leave my daughter. <laughs> no, so, so the, like the, <laughs> the, the type of person you would want your daughter and your wife to work with as an advisor, like what? As a client. As a client. Okay. 
Yeah, so so I think I think it has to be somebody who takes a coaching way of 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 advising the client. I think you've got to empower the client because I because I mean advice is good, but for me I would probably dial back two steps before advice, right? So so the way I I look at the industry now is that we we the advice led approach is what we need to end with, not what we should start with. And what I mean by that is that I think I think things like financial literacy, um, helping clients to understand the different options, almost a bit of a conversation for understanding, and then a conversation for possibility before a conversation for action. I think often we run too quickly into prescribing to clients what they should do with their money, what they should invest, what product they should buy, etc. I think all of those things are important, but I think I wouldn't start with them. So I would probably say. If someone is not a coach uh, or taking a coaching way of advising you, probably not the best, if I can summarize it that way. That's, uh, I'm wondering if Rob McDonald is listening to this, but I'm sure he's smiling as he's he's listening to our conversation because <laughs> that is one of the things he always talks about. If you haven't yet had coach training, in your opinion, where does an advisor or financial planner start because like, it, it can seem like a completely different career in fact a lot of people do this as a living as as coaches so so i think i think the the idea is not to be a coach as a noun but to be a coach as a verb right and and i don't think that takes a massive amount of effort to do that so i mean myself i'm not a coach but I, but i do like a coaching approach so i mean i i did a 6 month course with uct that hopefully gives me some credibility to use coaching, but without, you know, stretching as far as calling myself an actual coach, right? <laughs> I don't think I'll be able to earn a living as a coach. But I think I can certainly understand uh, like empowering conversations for clients. So so what I'll probably, I mean, like, uh, I mean, I've worked with Rob, you know, for many years. I mean, you mentioned Rob. Uh, you know, we've done uh, behavioral coaching programs uh, both at Alan Gray and at Momentum, I think, you know, which I thought were very good programs. I think part of that is to find something that is easily accessible, you know, uh, reasonable cost for financial advisors that have been actually doing, you know, a sales or just an advice only approach to start incorporating coaching into their, into their, into their value proposition without necessarily going as far as calling themselves a coach as well. So I think there's a balance there. It's a little bit of a blend. It's, it's, it's somewhat nuanced, if I can, if I can call it that. So is this more client experience? The client is experiencing being coached than you saying, Hey, I can now put on my coaching hat and Mr. Client, I'm a, I'm a better advisor because I can use coaching in the process. I think it's just a way of being because I mean, you know, coaching, when, when you start off the coaching journey, you know, it can feel like it's a technique or it's a method, etc. But if you truly, truly understand coaching over time, it actually changes who you are altogether. It, it becomes a way of being. It's not like it's not some sort of other method or whatever you use. So, I mean, earlier on, it it it, it can be that, you know. But I think ultimately, uh, when you really embed coaching in your approach, you fundamentally change almost everything about yourself, not just as, from professionally, but even in your personal life as well. Becky, you've now worked with a lot of different 
advisors during your different roles. And when you think about the people that you look up to, the advisors and financial planners, what stood out for you in terms of what made them so successful just on your level? I think it's a, it's, it's, it's an ability to have true empathy and care for the client and, and make it less about yourself, but, but more about it's up to you, if that makes any sense. You know, cause I think, I think the one thing that's quite unfortunately common in the industry is that we like talking about stuff that we understand and we like sort of talking about ourselves and, you know, our products, our industry and blah, blah, blah. But I think most people actually don't really care <laughs> that much as much as we care about these things, right? I think, I think people care about very simple things. Um, you know, what's going to happen with their families? Are their families protected? Are they going to be financially secure? Are they going to be healthy? Are they going to be happy? You know, and I mean, you know, more, more to us, you know, my later part, you know, in the industry, I think those sort of softer things have become much more interesting to me than, you know, like, you know, the, the hard things that we talk about in the industry, investment alpha, returns, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think some of the stuff, you know, coming at a global level. I mean, the work, for example, that people like Luminata doing and Santi and his team and David Hans, uh, I think speaks to that, that almost evolution of the industry towards, you know, helping clients to live their best lives as opposed to talking about the industry. So I think the advisors that I really like are advisors that intuitively get that distinction. And I think they just naturally connect better with clients, still use all the knowledge, the, the, the industry, you know, jargon, uh, not jargon, industry insights rather, right? But do it in a very simple way to clients that just connects with people at a very human level. Does that only come with experience or is there a shortcut? I'm trying to think of younger advisors that have joined the industry that I kind of can think of that's just intuitively kind of grasped that and, and did it. Uh, and it doesn't really come to mind. It seems like that comes with experience and understanding, but I might be wrong. I think yes and no. Eh? I, I think it. I think sometimes it just come, it comes from your DNA, <laughs> because I mean you you could have someone who's quite young, but they just have a caring gene, right off the bat, right, and and I think also just your personal confidence as well, because I think I think a lot of the industry doesn't teach the right things first. We kind of teach, you know, like product and sales and that sort of thing, right? So so there's an element of the industry overall that we need to change that that our industry is ultimately about people, right? And and not so much about our products. So I think part of the problem is just is just the the whole industry incentives, the 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 whole industry dynamics altogether. Uh but I think as you get older obviously you get more confident, you try a lot of things and you see you certainly know what doesn't work. <laughs> You know, so it becomes much easier to kind of like try new things and see what would work better. But I wouldn't necessarily think that it, it, it's it's something that 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 you have to be experienced because sometimes you can be experienced in the wrong thing. You know, sometimes I find it that even the people that have been in the industry thirty years, I mean, trying to teach them a coaching way of advising, good luck, right? So, so so I don't think it's an age thing. I think it's more of a human thing. That we just need to, you know, cultivate more in the industry and be more intentional around it. I love that cultivating that caring gene and kind of if you naturally show up as a caring person, 
why then do we have so many older male advisors who I think it doesn't always naturally come easy to be caring? You know, I'm just thinking oftentimes women tend to show up a lot more caring. <laughs> why hasn't that changed, Becky? Or is that the remuneration model problem? I'll be a little bit controversial. It's just I'll use one word, commission. <laughs> It is, it's I mean, changing, it's I, changing. Yeah, unfortunately, our industry is very sales-driven, right? Going back to the whole sales thing now, right? And I think this is sometimes, you know, the the not-so-inclusive part of the commission model because I think it, it naturally lends itself to much more confident, you know, people tend to be more male, more older, right? Because, uh, I mean, if you're a young person, it, it's it's not a, it's not a great REM model. So, I mean, I started off, you know, as a financial advisor. And the one thing that was tough for me was the REM model, right? And and and, and I think at a at a very human level, I do like empathize with everybody sort of under five years in the industry. You know, the REM models are not great. Uh I think as an industry overall, if we could come up with with much more, you know, sort of uh, uh sustainable REM models, I think it, it would help for the industry to to be a little bit more balanced, to have more diversity, whether from a from a race, gender, age, social class perspective, etc. Because I think with with the REM model we've got now, it's it, it just it's, it just naturally excludes a lot of people. What would have have to happen for that to change? Because it seems like we've been talking about this for five, ten years. And very little has changed. Like it doesn't feel like there's an urgency, especially from the bigger businesses. You know, it's easy to make a change in a small business and offer someone a salary. But in your mind, what would have to change for for these businesses to conform other than from a regulatory perspective it being forced? So, so I think unfortunately we've probably exhausted the whole regulatory angle to to drive the change. In fact, in fact, regulation is becoming a burden on advice practices and 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 then unsustainable cost and compliance and all of those things right i think it it goes back really more to to self regulation right i think i think more to ethics and and the purpose and the ethos of the industry overall right um and you can't regulate ethos, ethics and ethos and integrity. Like those things, you just can't regulate them. It's not, you know, like you, you, you're probably going to end up having, you know, uh, uh, too much regulation altogether. Right. So, so, so it's a, it's a difficult one. Uh, uh, Louis, I think we, we, we need to, we need to promote the industry in such a way that we try and find win-wins. We align what is ultimately in the client's best interest with what is also in the interest of the financial advisors and the different product and service providers out there. Uh, and I think the, the product and service providers need to lead the way because they probably have the, 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 the most amount of resources and leverage to, to make the changes. But from what I see so far, I think they're busy with other things. What are the, what are those things um, without uh, giving us too much insight? <laughs> Well, is it moving I, I the think, needle? I think, it, I think it's just not in their commercial interest to really make the changes that are, are impactful for the broader, for the for the better good of the industry overall. Mm. You know, mm. um, and I suppose the, the you almost need disruption. I mean, this is one of the things that we was chatting with with, with Derek and, and Adam when, when I did the podcast about you know uh, leading financial advice that the 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 firms 
that truly want to lead with financial advice would need to change the rev models, right? And, and, and it's going to be tough for them earlier on. But I think if the, the first sort of big entity that figures out how to do that one, you know, is, is probably going to be able to disrupt the industry in ways that, that will fundamentally change the, the entire landscape. So let's let's carry on with this idea. If you had to start that business that's going to disrupt the industry, like who who do you get on your team in terms of people? Like what what do you offer someone and and how do you price that? Does it look like traditional advice? I think it's not it's not I think it, it won't be like a big fundamental shift in terms of the way advice is dispensed and the processes people follow in the technologies, you know, all of that. I I think a lot of that is actually, you know, going well. I think it's just the 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 REM model to the extent that it 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 fosters diversity, inclusion, and it fosters uh, that caring gene that we we're talking about earlier on, right? So it's more the incentives really that you know. Um, and unfortunately, it will take a bit of a balance sheet to do that. But one has to have faith that if you if you fundamentally change the, the REM models. Uh, and still got the right people because you still have to solve for, you know, uh, good work ethic and, you know, and all of those other things. Cause then, you know, you still have to be productive as a business and, and, and have a good return on your capital and investment. So, so it's, it's a lot of, you know, loose ends to manage well. Uh, I'm not suggesting for a second that it's easy because, I mean, if you're running a business, you still have to report to shareholders and, you know, uh, return on capital and return on shareholders, funds, etc. All of those things are equally important. But so is also, you know, living to the ethos of the of the industry as well. That we we, we proclaim that we we ultimately do things that are in the best interest of our clients. So so that balance between getting a good return for shareholders and also making sure that we attract, you know, uh, a more diverse and committed you know, group of financial advisors and we give them the platform and, and the resources and, and the ability to be successful, you know, it's not an easy one. But I think if, if you can solve for, for all of those moving dynamics, I think you're probably on the right path. I like that, that it's not, it's not easy, but there could be a simple solution. But no one's saying the implementation is easy. When you think about things outside of financial services that are inspiring you or that you use from to inspire how you look at financial services like what what industries motivate you the most or which are the ones that you learn from the most so so i'm quite passionate about smes uh and, and social entrepreneurship right so i mean if you look at a at a much more broad economy level uh whether you look at the ndp you know, 2030 from a local perspective or the SDGs from a global perspective, you know, things like financial inclusion, inclusive growth, decent jobs, et cetera, right? I mean, SMEs will have to pay a very, very big part in that. I mean, if you look at South Africa, for example, I mean, we've got, a, we're, we're at a very slow, slow growth, you know, small, uh, uh, slow growth economy. I mean, I think, I think at last count, we're less than 2%. And, and, and probably, you know, depending on which economists you listen to, we will probably even go into even, you know, less than 1% <laughs> potentially, right? So, so the growth is very small, but then the big companies are also not employing a lot of people either, right? So, so if you look at, at best estimates, 80 to 90% of new jobs would have to be created by small to medium enterprises, right? And, and I think those businesses often, 
uh, are created with a much more bigger purpose and 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 ethos than just trying to make a profit. Because often if you're a small business and your incentive or the reason you go into business is to make a profit, you'll probably be part of the 80% that actually fell, right? In the first instance, because a lot of small businesses fell. So so I think I think small businesses is is a big passion of mine because of the ability to create you know, significant number of, of, of decent jobs, especially considering South Africa with the, the high rate of unemployment, particularly with the youth. I think at the moment, probably running over 50% of youth unemployment, you know, uh, between sort of people between 18 to 35 years. So that's, that's, that's a significant problem that we've got. And I think if you tally up what we need to do with SMEs and also, you know, with social entrepreneurship as well, which is the concept of actually, you know, using market systems to drive growth, but actually not just focusing on making profits only. So in other words, you know, you know, the business has to have a higher purpose than just, you know, profit incentive. So I think those two things for me are something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, is the future, not only for South Africa, but the rest of the continent, I think. And often we see in that space, people lean more towards banking or transactional things. I haven't come across a lot of disruptors in terms of the advice space. Do you think there is a gap? So, so the so the advice space is, is a very interesting one. So, so I mean, if you look at the different research uh, that has been done in South Africa, South Africa is probably one of the. There's a reason why South Africa has got is, is one of the most unequal societies in the world. We've got one of the highest Gini ratios in the world. Uh, uh, 95% of assets in this country are controlled by the top 10% of clients and, and families, you know, so it's, it's a very skewed, right? So, so I think from, from, from that perspective, if you're a good financial advisor and well qualified, and there's a lot of very good financial advisors in South Africa, you know, uh, uh, you know, yourself being one of them, you know, and, and, and I think you're doing a great job and, and so are many other, financial advisors in South Africa. But I think, you know, if you look at the dynamics of, of the market, it just lends itself more to focusing on the top 10% of clients. Because then, you know, if you look at the sort of that middle middle market, right? I mean, it's it's got significant income, I think about 30 to 40% of the income, you know, but in terms of assets, it's got almost no assets at all, right? So, I mean, that's a tough market to service, especially considering the dynamics you know, and the structural, you know, dynamics of our industry overall. So, so, so I think that's the thing that's why we're not getting a lot of disruption because if you're a good financial advisor, you probably end well without having to disrupt anything, right? And the disruption that we need to see, you know, will probably have to come from the people that are doing well already, right? That actually go and target a different clientele to, altogether. So, for example, the, the professionals that earn a good living, or in a good salary, but actually have got very little assets. You know, I think in the US, for example, they're starting to think about like uh, subscription models for advisors, an example. I mean, that's a tough one. I, don't, I haven't seen anybody doing it with any level of scale in South Africa. So, so stuff like that, I think that's the sort of disruption that we need, you know, but I, I can't see it happening from any of the big players that are doing well. It's just not in their commercial interest to do that. Yeah, it would almost be like an incubator and say, okay, let's, let's test this and see, uh, you know, like you said, social responsibility. Let's, let's give back instead of 
running the business purely for profits because the urgency is not yet there to change the existing business models because most most people in those spaces don't feel that it's broken, right? Yet the future no. clients are saying this model is not built for us. Absolutely. Because, I mean, it's almost a, a, a disconnect, right, uh, or a misalignment of sorts. Because, uh, I mean, they're doing well. Because, I mean, like there's a lot of good advisors. I mean, like yourself, you know, you're doing well and you don't necessarily service in the client who can't afford your services. I don't know if you get what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's a big chunk of, of South Africans that need good financial advice, but they don't have a lot of assets, you know, for the AUA model, which is the dominant model in South Africa. I think you would agree with me on that, right? You know, and then you got all of these clients that, that need advice, but firstly, they don't want to pay for it because they don't understand why they should pay for it. So that's another complexity on its own, right? You know, I mean, my young brother, you know, who's, who's, who's a lawyer, he wouldn't necessarily think that he needs a financial advisor, right? I mean, it's going to be a hard sell for a financial advisor to go to him and say, oh, you need to pay me like a thousand rands per hour for financial advice, right? So <laughs> that's, that's the other complexity that we've got in the industry. So the, the, the sort of hourly rate or return or fee for advice model, I think that those, all those models, are good models in theory, but I think actually scaling them is a lot harder than it sounds. And I think that's the fundamental challenge that we've got in our industry. Yeah, the assets under management model is so convenient because you don't have to follow up on invoices. You don't have to chase people that are not paying. And like you're saying, why why fix something that's not broken in, in the eyes of the business owner, yet the clients need to be serviced? So somehow I'm thinking... Maybe advice has become too expensive. Maybe we need to figure out how to make advice cheaper and distribute it amongst more people so that there's a, a bigger benefit. Kind of what some of the US companies have done through group coaching, right? They have a group of people that going through the similar challenges, like a, I can imagine a fitness boot camp for, for clients. And we have a financial planner hosting it and doing this fitness boot camp and, and getting paid. Yet, we don't really see that in South Africa, not that I know of. Absolutely. I, I think that's a good point. I mean, the other thing is also technology as well, right? Because, because then if you think about, uh, about, about pre-COVID, the cost of distribution is just, it just doesn't make any sense. It's not going to work to actually have any model outside the AUM model. Because, you know, so you, you find that the commission model and the AUM model actually uh, have got much better margins for the high cost of distribution that we had pre-technology and pre-COVID and, and all the digital adoption that's going on right now. But I think now with technology, you know, you and I can have a conversation right now without any incremental cost to our household costs because then I've already paid for my, for my Wi-Fi, right? <laughs> so I didn't have to drive around and come and meet you and spend money and that sort of thing. So, so I think, I think I like what you're saying around group coaching. You know, it's almost a little bit of group education because the reality of the matter is that a lot of professionals, they actually need more financial literacy and education than they need financial advice, right? So they will need financial advice once they get that piece, you know, sorted first. So so if you look at, it, at a sort of like what we offer in the industry, you know, from financial, you know, financial literacy and then benefit counseling, I think the benefit counseling legislation was actually quite a good thing uh, for the industry 
uh, in terms of reaching more people that need, you know, in, that sort of in-between education and advice, but can't quite afford advice because often the benefit counselors are actually on a better REM model and are more likely to give, you know, uh, members, you know, better financial literacy and education without incurring, you know, unsustainable costs. Because if you're a financial advisor, even giving financial literacy and education is also expensive as well. It's it's not really going to work for you if you've got like low margin clients. So so I think we've got to harness technology. We've got to think about this thing, you know, in, in ways that are scalable, like group coaching, for example, group financial literacy platforms. I know, for example, Asisa has started a platform for financial literacy that is neutral of all products and that sort of thing. And I think those sort of initiatives, you know, are, are, are what we need to do at, a, at an industry level to be actually be able to help more people without disempowering the advisors that are doing very well, but actually creating more spaces for more inclusivity, more, you know, new advisors, young advisors that can, you know, work with, with clients that pay less margins, you know, because I mean, like, if you're going to help younger people, uh, Louis, you probably have to charge a lot less and work a lot harder. I mean, it doesn't sound like a good value proposition for an established advisor with, with a billion of AUM already under, and, under, under advice. We're seeing quite a few advisors saying, yes, we're going to earn an income from 90% of our clients and 10% of the clients we're going to service at maybe a zero cost, kind of a let's give this back in terms of building South Africa. And I think there's, a, there's merit in those type of business models. But at the same time, you don't want to devalue that advice. But it is interesting having these conversations saying what needs to change for that. We, we see the banks playing into these spaces and maybe they are moving into the territory of the life insurers and, and maybe there'll be a, a massive fight between banks and insurers for, for the advice space. Yeah, so, so so I think it's I mean it's it's quite interesting as well from a legislative perspective because you see a lot of the banks now uh, are moving into this two tier model mostly mm. because of legislation. So I mean if you go back sort of like ten years ago, there was you know the, I think the legislative environment was quite confusing. You know, you had multi product, like you had to study all the products in the markets. I mean, it was completely impractical, right? Mm. Uh, and I think I think where the industry is going now with the two tier model where you're either an independent financial advisor or you're sort of like a tired advisor, right? So I think it's making it much easier. And you see a lot of banks now are splitting their distribution into independent and then and then sort of tied. So it's going to be interesting how that dynamic plays out as well, because I think it's, got, it's going to have a material change on, on distribution you know, of the industry. And I'm also curious to find out what, if any, it might impact REM models in the industry overall. So, so there's a lot of plans that need to land there that, that, that we probably need to watch and, and see what happens. Where will you be spending most of your time and energy? I mean, what's the future holding for, for Becky? If there's anything that you can share with us or is that uh, still a work in progress at the moment? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a work in progress. So, so I'm, 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 I'm taking a bit of an extended sabbatical. Uh, from from corporate life, you know, I might come back, I might not come back. Uh, it, it it all depends, but I suppose you know the thing is that whatever I do, I, I you know I'd want to do something that's going to have impact and, and help you know as many uh, uh, consumers as possible. 
I mean, just from a scale perspective, that's likely more to be to be B to B. You know, helping other financial advisors. I mean, I've been an advisor myself, and I've been a consultant now for you know almost close on ten years. So, so I'm I'm probably I'm probably sort of more leaning towards B to B to be able to have scale and and support the advice the advisor community to to be able to do a better job for their clients and and leverage you know technology you know all the other stuff that we're talking about in the industry you know but but for now I'll probably just wanna you know take some you know sleep a little bit more <laughs> I'm a little bit short on sleep so so I'll probably take a bit of a break and and recoup a little bit and and then maybe in the new year you know sort of apply my mind a little bit more specifically to what I need to do. Becky, I can see how passionate you are for serving these clients, clients that need access to advice, but also doing it at scale and, and making an impact. Um, it is refreshing to to hear that. I want to just thank you for being here today and your contribution to our market and what you've done. It's It's been wonderful to chat to you. No, thank you for inviting me uh, and for the opportunity to 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 share with, uh, with the advisor community. Brilliant. And all the best on catching up on that sleep. Uh, it does get better, but the, the roles change. <laughs> You're going to be running around <laughs> very soon trying to, trying to keep them alive. No, absolutely. Uh, I, I think, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about now is like, how do I balance, you know, the work and, and, and being a father and, and all of that. So, yeah, but I, I'm sure I'll be okay. There, there's yeah, a reason the father is the first thing on your LinkedIn profile. And, uh, I take my hat off to that. No, thank you. It's the most important for me at the moment, that's for sure. Absolutely. All the best, Becky.